Let us pray as we talk about the subject, the heat is on. The heat is on. Father in heaven, I pray that through your spirit, I may decrease and that Jesus may increase. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One Sunday morning, Satan happened to be standing outside of a large Adventist church. One, sa- one sa- Sabbath morning, sorry. <laughs> one Sabbath morning, Satan happened to be standing outside of a large Adventist church. Inside, the people were singing, praying, and listening to a sermon. Someone passed by on the sidewalk and noticed Satan standing on the steps of the church. The passerby asked Satan if it bothered him to hear the people worshiping the Lord. And with a demonic laugh, he said, no, it doesn't bother me in the least. They get that way on Sabbath, but they'll be all right come Monday morning. It's just a little habit they've acquired. This illustration is a very alarming reality for many who claim to worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Throughout the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the one appropriate response of humanity to God's demonstration of love and amazing grace in sending Jesus to rescue us is worship. I say it again, the Bible is imperative that the only appropriate response to his love is worship. Especially in the last days of Earth's history, in the three angels' messages declared in Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12, the word worship appears three times. And in Revelation 13, the quote-unquote Mark of the Beast chapter of the Bible, the word worship or worshipped appears five times. As much as the Bible focuses on the act of worship in these last days, it is grossly misunderstood by many a Christian. For many, as suggested by the opening illustration of Satan standing outside the church, worship is merely a weekly habit in which we internally say to God, therefore, Lord, see, I've given you my time. Are we good now? Then as soon as we leave church or as soon as the sun sets on Sabbath, we go back to sin mode. We return to the same old unbelief, the same old lack of Bible study, the same old lack of praying, the same old lack of service to your church, the same old lack of returning tithes and offerings, the same old temper, the same old lying, the same old marital discord, the same old gluttony, the same old types of food we eat, the same old club going, the same old music, same old TV shows, and the list goes on and on. And as long as we continue to reduce worship to a weekly habit, we will continue to be the laughing stock of the universe in the eyes of Satan and his imps. In addition, as long as we continue to relegate worship to a weekly appearance in a building, true worship will never take place because it will stay in the building and never flow out into the communities in which God has placed our churches and households. In a nutshell, God designed worship to be a lifestyle. 
In other words, God designed that all created beings endowed with reason and intellect should be walking worship services. First slide, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. Every day and everywhere we go, those who are unsaved should be able to see a worship service in how we conduct ourselves. A harmonious marriage is an act of worship. A healthy lifestyle is an act of worship. Telling the truth on them taxes is an act of worship. Preserving your virginity, both females and males, is an act of worship. Refraining from drugs and alcohol is an act of worship. Even refraining from gossip is an act of worship. Worship is an amalgamation of the root word worth and the suffix ship. Worth connotates value or valuable or something that is deserving. And ship is the state of. And so therefore, when human beings worship God, it simply means that whatever we're doing, we are performing it because God is valuable or God is deserving. Or in other words, God is worth this action. And anything short of it leads to misery. Although the world is getting more chaotic by the day, praise the Lord, we are allowed to worship freely. Some are worshiping in church buildings. Some are attending service virtually. But no matter where we're worshiping in America, virtually or in brick and mortar or both, we are free to worship who, what, when, where, why, and how we want to worship. However, sooner than we believe, worship will soon become economically and physically dangerous. For we read in Revelation 13, verses 15 through 17, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. According to the Bible, soon, very soon, worshiping God will put us in the poorhouse. And then if that doesn't work, if you persist on worshiping him, it will cost us our life. Right now, it's easy to worship God in a church building. We aren't threatened with economic persecution or physical persecution for worshiping the Creator. We're free to worship on Sabbath, and praise the Lord for that. But soon, a worldwide Sunday law will be enacted and enforced, and it is then that the true worshipers of God will stand out and stand up. And our only safety lies in true worship. Is God really worth going broke for? Is God really worth dying for? And I submit to you today by the Holy Ghost that the only way to know that God is worth going broke for or if God is really worth dying for is, behold, is by beholding his love for you in the light of the cross of Christ. Without understanding God's love for us in the cross of Christ, we will never see him as worth enduring economic and physical persecution for. 
please be assured that the issue of worship will be the final battle on this earth in the great controversy between good and evil. But fortunately for us, the Bible gives us an illustration of this principle, and it is highly instructive for our worship as the end-time remnant church of God. And our case study this morning is found in the book of Daniel and in chapter 3. And if we can turn there real quick. I just want to talk through it a little bit before we get to what the, the, the things that God wants us to practice. And so just to give a little context of why we land in chapter 3 is because in the first two chapters, Daniel and his friends uh, endured a sanction on their eating habits. And by God's grace, they were delivered from that. And at the end of that 10-day trial, they were found 10 times wiser than the most profound scholar and theologians in their day. And then we go on to, vert to chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and he has his dream of, of, of a statue that was made of, 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 of different metals, and each metal uh, was inferior to the other. And then he didn't understand his dream. He didn't even remember what he dreamt. And uh, so he asked his wise men and astrologers not only to interpret the dream, but to tell him what the dream was. And by God's grace, three young people, or four young people rather, that's all it took. And they had a prayer meeting. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Young people, prayer meeting is where it's at, cuz. That's where it's at. So four young people, and it don't take a lot, just four young people had a prayer meeting, and God did the impossible. I mean, because I know that none of you, if I asked you what I dreamt last night, you would be hard-pressed, almost impossible without the Spirit of God to tell me what I dreamt last night. But God did that for these young people who thought it was important to pray. And so God told Nebuchadnezzar he was this head of gold. And he accepted this vision for a while and, and, and exalted those four young boys uh, to leadership positions in his country. But then Nebuchadnezzar had a habit of hanging around the wrong people. And as he hung around his wrong people, they started putting ideas in his mind that, that, that God's word was not true and it was not going to come to pass. Choose your friends wisely. When they ain't leading you to the counsel of the Bible and they're not inspiring you to follow the counsel of the Bible, uh, my, like my mamas would say, feed them with a long spoon. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar should have did. So he listened to them, and under their counsel, he gets the idea to erect a statue of not only having the head of gold, but the entire thing of, hold, uh, of gold, therefore implying that God's word is not true, that his kingdom was going to last forever. And that's where we land it in chapter 3. And then in chapter 3, he, he, he tells his, his subjects um, that, they need to, he called everybody who was anybody and told them that they all need to worship this image, this idol uh, that he had set up. And that is where we're going to go today. And I just want to skip down in chapter 3, going to verse 22. And uh, I mean, wait, where, where is it at? Oh, there it is in verse uh, 
17, because this is very central to not only the act of worship as far as being a weekly habit, but this addresses the, the, the true nature of worship and our disposition as we worship that we're to have. This, po- this principle is central to everything that we're about to share. And in verse 17, after Nebuchadnezzar found out that these dudes didn't, but them, them, them three Hebrew boys didn't bow down, uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls them in for a conference, and then they, he tells them, you know, wondering why they haven't bowed down and stuff, and that, that, that not only is he not, if they don't bow down, that he's going to, throw them, and they're going to heat up the furnace seven times hotter, and then who is going to be that God to deliver them? And then verse 17 says, the, the Hebrew boy is now speaking to him, and, and, and they reply back to him, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, but if not, be it known unto thee, o, o king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They had determined that they, I don't, if, if whether, we, we're not in this so that God can deliver us. We know that he can, and we know that he will, but that's not why we're doing it. So even if God, God don't have to deliver us, we are not going to worship you. And the only way you can come to that point is, is if you have an intimate, personal relationship with God. And it was alarming, it wasn't alarming to me, but it was so refreshing to see that these are young people that got this type of relationship with God. So there are basically three things that we need to consider as we engage, engage on our case study, that when the heat is on, recognizing God's love for you will enable you to do three things. Number one, go bravely to the fire. Number two, stand firmly in the fire. And then verse three, leave freely from the fire. Point number one, when the heat is on, Recognizing God's love for you will enable you to go bravely to the fire. Daniel chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. This piece of text reveals that the king's commandment was urgent or expedited with all importance. This means that the soldiers' lives depended on carrying out the king's command. And if they fail to execute and throw the boys into the furnace, then they themselves will be thrown into the furnace. So they take up the three Hebrew slave boys and they handcuff them and they start walking to the furnace. And as they draw closer and closer to the furnace, they notice it gets hotter and hotter. However, they were commanded to throw them in the furnace, and the only way they could throw them in the furnace is to take them to the opening of the furnace and throw them in. However, it is so hot at the opening of the furnace that it is just like being inside the furnace itself. But the Bible says that they never made it to the opening of the furnace to throw them in. See, your Bible says that the flames overtook them before they ever threw them in. Now the question that rises is this, how were they going to be thrown into the furnace now that the flames have killed the men that were supposed to throw them in? 
That's one question. The other question that I have and that I would have had if I were at that scene when it happened is this. How come the soldiers died but the Hebrew boys didn't? Well, the answer to the first question is in the text, and it gives us our first point. When the heat is on, recognizing God's love for you will enable you to go bravely to the fire. And one thing I teach my students in, 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 to develop a reading skill is called inference. The, the ability to, to understand what the author is saying without him writing it in, the, in, in whatever he's writing. And th this is what the Bible does for us. It's simple. How? No one threw them into the flames. They walked to the flames. I mean, you can't have it both. You can't have it where the, the, the men that threw them in are slew, but at the same time able to throw them in. You can't have it both ways. It has to be one or the other. And walking to those flames, even though they didn't have to go at that point because those men were dead, they still walked to the flames. And that took bravery of the highest order. But however, when you're not in it for the deliverance, but because of your appreciation of the relationship, it enables you to be brave. See, these boys had a relationship with God that wouldn't crumble under the threat of death. They had a relationship with God that could not be bought or sold. And I'm sure that the author of Hebrews 11.35 had this story in mind whenever he wrote, Women received their dead, raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. In Hebrews 11, that's where the, you know, the quote-unquote hall of faith is of many men and women of God who, dis, who were, were renowned for their faith. And um, it says that some of them didn't even accept deliverance so that they could obtain a better resurrection. When you can grasp the reality that God loves you and values you so much that he allowed Jesus to die the second death at the cross on our behalf, you won't serve God based on his promises of deliverance either. This is where the Bible starts turning our theology upside down. You realize that God is worthy of going through the fire for whether he delivers you or not. It enables you to bravely face any fire. God is not great merely because he, because he may deliver us from the fire. He is great because of what he gave up for us. I'll say amen for you. God is not great because of his promises to deliver us because we find many promises in the Bible that God says where he will deliver us. God is great because he sent Jesus to die an eternal death on our behalf that we don't have to do it. I want to see this, this thing here uh, real quick. Uh, it's still in Daniel chapter 3. Um, it's this fail down principle. The, 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 this, this chapter, this phrase was, 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 it was, re it was repetitive. It was repetitive. Daniel chapter 3, and you find it like at least five times in here. Daniel chapter 3, the first instance is in verse 5, where it says that at what time you hear all them instruments, I'm not going to go through every one of them. And then uh, in verse 6, it says that, oh, in verse 5, it says that ye fall down and worship. 
You see that? It says that you fall down and worship. Verse 5. For at what time you hear the sound of all those instruments, you fall down and worship. Then verse 6 says, and who falleth not down and worshipeth. Right? And then in verse 7 it says, fell down and worshipped. And then it goes in verse 10, shall fall down and worship. Verse 11, fall down, falleth not down and worshipeth. And in verse 15, ye fall down and worship. It's a lot of times to repeat that phrase. Now, as we, as they started facing the fire, of course they walked to the flames and still went into the fire, and it was because they saw something that we don't see. As they started facing the fire, the Bible, your Bible says, and my Bible says that um, they fell down in the flames. Now, if we every other instance where it missed it, where it mentions fall down and what? Fall down in, fall down in, and then whenever it get to the Hebrew boys, it says they fell down. And notice they weren't thrown in. So if they fell down in the fire, what were they doing? Bravely facing the fire will lead you to a place where you can fall down willingly and worship your creator. See, as they approached that flame, they saw that there was a greater fire in there. They saw that our God, whom is a consuming fire, and they saw the fires of his love in there, and they went in there, and as soon as they stepped in the flames, they started worshiping. Now, I wonder, do we have that kind of disposition whenever we walk to our fire? What is our first reaction whenever we get in our fire? Is it to go through all of our resources so we can evade that trial or tribulation? Or do we, as our first instinct, to fall down and worship? And by the way, that in the, in the in the in the in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, this uh, fell down. It actually uh, connotates the accept the 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 it, it connotates being accepted, ready for ready for inheritance or the overturning of a false judgment. And if there was a, ever a false judgment, this would be it. And we see that as they went and fell down and worshipped God, God was in the act of overturning their judgment. Point number two, when the heat is on, recognizing God's love for you will enable you to stand firmly in the fire. Verse 24 and 25, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. In this portion of Scripture, we read that the king noticed something different about science, and he found out what we already know as Christians, that the natural world is subservient to its creator. He was so shocked by what he saw that his question was kind of 
kind of not in sequential order, at least in my opinion. See, in verse 24, instead of wondering how many men were cast into the fire, my question in my curious mind, my first question would not have been how many men. My question would have been how is anybody alive? I mean, did it really matter if it was four people? It didn't matter if it was a hundred people. That fire was so hot, everybody should have been dead. Asking the wrong questions. See, it doesn't make a difference how much money you have. It doesn't make a difference how many resources you have. It doesn't make a difference how many, how many people you have backing you. Just like it didn't make a difference how many people were, I mean, how many people were in the flame. With it, it didn't matter how many people were standing up. It does make a difference of who was in there with them, though. And in our lives, it don't matter how much money you got. It just matters who's with you when you got the money. See, it wasn't just anybody with them. It wasn't just any old person with them in that flame. This was Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, the Prince of Peace, the Great I Am was in that flame with them. And when they saw his presence, they just had no choice but to fall down and worship him. And he lifts them up, and now they're standing firmly because of his love and his grace and his presence. He is in there with them and enabling them to stand firmly in that fire. And it's the same with us. That whenever we, hit, we, we have his presence with us, we have that relationship with us, it doesn't matter what befalls us, he enables us to stand. It is not always God's design to make us avoid the, the fire, but it is his desire that whenever he goes in, the, that we go to the fire, he's there with us and he helps us to stand through it all. What an awesome blessing. The sinless one, taking time out of the affairs of the universe to bless three sinners with his presence. Sometimes even when God hasn't delivered me from my fire when I think he ought to, I'm just comforted by the fact that I know Jesus is with me. And this is one of the great benefits of having the type of relationship with Jesus in which you can recognize his love for you. See, every human being who has ever lived on this planet has had trouble at some point in their life. The difference is that Christians are comforted by the presence of Jesus, or you should be comforted by the presence of Jesus. See, trials are a lot lighter when Jesus is with you. The gospel truth is that all Christians should know that they can face anything as long as Jesus is with you. And after seeing the Hebrew slave boys walk themselves to the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar actually had the audacity to claim credit for casting them into the fire. Did not we cast? Or you didn't cast nothing in there. See, we need to know that not every time, we need to know that not every time we go into the fire is because Nebuchadnezzar put us in there. We need to know that every time we go into the fire, it's not because the devil put us in there. Sometimes we go into the fire because our relationship with God is what causes us to go. See, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, well known to us all, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yea, 
and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So no matter how much you try to evade it, if you have a pure, true, intimate relationship with God, this is going to come to you. You ain't got to wait for the devil to bring it to you. Your lifestyle is going to bring you into conflict with the world. Jesus did not come to be friends with the world. Jesus came to call us out of the world into his kingdom. And the alarming thing that I start seeing nowadays is that Christians are trying to get going out of our way and might I say compromise to get the world to like us. It never works. It never works. What ends up happening is instead of us lifting the world up, they end up pulling us down. So stand for Jesus. Hold up the banner and be firm and decided in your relationship with him because that is how people are lifted out of the gutter. They look at our lives, as we said earlier, our lives should be walking worship services. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, once we recognize his love for us, we'll stand firm in the fire, and we will stand firm and not melt. Now, it's no coincidence that there was a furnace on hand for the occasion. I mean, after all, how do you think he made that statue? See, the, the most likely the sta- even though most likely the statue wasn't solid gold through and through, um, and it's highly possible that it was made of wood on the inside and overlaid with gold. That's one thing, or it could have been solid gold all the way through. We we just don't know. But whatever the case, it took a lot of gold to melt. And even at Seven Day Adventist, we shouldn't it shouldn't surprise us that many of the it shouldn't surprise us about it being overlaid with gold because many articles in the furniture on the inside of the tabernacle was made out of wood overlaid with gold. So that's not a new concept. But even if it was solid gold through and through, it was a lot of gold to melt. And once it was melted, key point, once it was melted, it was molded into the shape of the idol. What we have here is a contrast of goals in this situation. Elder Bates, what do you mean by a contrast of goals? Well, what Nebuchadnezzar was used to is that whenever he put the actual metal of gold in the furnace, he was used to seeing it melt, right? And he reasoned that if I put human beings in there, they're going to melt, right? But he don't understand my God. He don't understand my God. Unlike the gold that he was used to putting in there that melted, and eventually whenever you melt, the devil can mold you into his image. But the true worshipers of God who are worshiping him not only in a weekly habit, but an everyday experience, they don't melt under the fire. And that's God's gold. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 12. It tells us, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Just to drive this point that in God's eyes, human beings are his gold. His followers are his gold. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 3. It tells us, the fining pot is for the silver and the furnace 
the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Proverbs 27, verse 21. As the finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his what? Praise. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor at the glory and at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So what we have here is a contrast of goals. Satan is trying to intimidate them by his display of the fire having power over natural gold, and God is here uh, trying to lift everyone up by his display of his gold having power over the fire. My goodness. I don't know why that don't get y'all Adventists excited, but that's all right. Yeah, see, what we have to understand is that through God, you have power over your situation so that it doesn't destroy you. The knowledge of God's love for us given to us at the cross allows us to stand firm and not melt under the power of whatever fiery situation is in our life. And the icing on the cake is that your Bible in verse 25 tells you that they were loose in the fire. Now, the, the world, they, 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 <laughs> see, human reasoning enjoys being bound on the, being bound on the, in the, they, they, so in other words, God, they were bound on the outside, but loose in the fire. See, what we want to do is be free on the outside. But without God, being free on the outside is of no good to us. When I used to do prison ministry, one of the things that I used to inform them, which I don't know whether they took it or not, but one of the things that I used to tell them is that, that although they were incarcerated, having Jesus as your Lord and Savior, they were better off being incarcerated with Jesus as their Lord and Savior than the sinner was being free in the street. But too often we don't view it that way. We want to, no, I want to be free on that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't desire to be free on the outside or nothing like that. But I'm just saying if the choices had to be that, which apparently one day it is coming to us because of our loyalty to God and worshiping him on the Sabbath day, that test is coming to us. And we need to recognize that it is best to be in whatever situation God has us in, even if it's a fiery situation, than to be free on the outside. Because it is that very fiery situation that sets us free. That's why Christians don't need to be afraid of the time of trouble. Is it going to be one that such has never been seen on the world? Of course. But with Jesus, we have no reason to fear. How many times have we sought to escape the very fire that will set us free from what has us bound? Although the fire is meant by Satan to destroy us, although the fire is meant by Satan to defeat us, although the fire is meant by Satan to discourage us, God uses that same fire, and he uses it to set us free. Now, none of us want fires in our lives, and I don't think we should go out seeking any, just to be clear. However, it is inevitable that they're going to come. 
And what God is trying to address is our attitude once they come. Do we embrace it as an opportunity for God's glory like they did, or will we seek deliverance? Hear me out. Very important. Deliverance and God's glory are two entirely different things. Deliverance and God's glory are entirely different things. See, deliverance is not the only mechanism through which God seeks out his glory. Come to prayer meeting, oh, God delivered me from this and God delivered me from that. We get a testimony, God delivered me. And that's great. That's great. But that's not the end all be all. It's just one of his mechanisms for his glory. Deliverance is just one of the mechanisms for his glory, but it's not the only one. There are times when God gets just as much glory for your endurance of the fire, when he gets just as much glory for your ability to stand in the fire and your attitude in the fire as he does in your deliverance. And having the proper attitude, enduring the fire, embracing the fire. And it might be that God is trying to get himself some glory by your ability to stand in that fire. In other words, are you going to let God show off his gold the same way the devil is used to showing off his gold? Last point, and we're about to close. When the heat is on, recognizing God's love for you will enable you to leave freely from the fire. Verse 26 and 27, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the, near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was in hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. So leave freely from the fire. It's interesting to note that Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the furnace. And we already know that when there was... Uh, at least two other Babylonians who tried to come near to the furnace, and it was sizzle fits. But now this Babylonian, the king of the Babylonians, who was more Babylonian than the soldiers that got killed, he's able to come to the furnace. The soldiers he sent in earlier died trying to get that close. And what this does is flip our theology upside down and what we see here is the amazing display of God's grace the very king who built this idol which was a defiance of the prophetic word of God was spared by God what condescension and patience that God has even with those that defy him the most that's why you may see drunkards who never get cirrhosis of the liver. That's why you may see chain smokers that never get lung cancer. That's why you may see people live to be 100 even though pork is the main portion of their daily diet. That's why you sometimes see a Christian marry an unbeliever and they don't end up in divorce. That's why you see elders cheating on their wives and still allowed to preach and serve. It is because of God's mercy and his desire to save even the worst of us. 
When you recognize God's love for you, you will be being able to leave freely from the fire. Nowhere do we read that Nebuchadnezzar turned the fire off. It ain't like he said, dash some water on that campfire. He didn't do none of that. Nowhere do we read that he had his soldiers uh, 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 stomp it out. The fire was still burning when he told them to come out. Leave freely from the fire. God was so good to them that they walked away unscathed even while the fire was burning. See, there have been times in my life when God did not have to put the fire out. He allowed me to walk away unscathed while the fire was still burning hot. And sometimes God gets glory in our deliverance not by putting out the fire, but by pulling out what's in the fire. See, God did not put out the fire of my cigarette or weed addiction. He pulled me out of it. <laughs> Amen. God did not put out the fire of my rap career. He pulled me out of it. God did not put out the fire of my unholy associations with loose women. He pulled me out of it. God will not put out the fire of porn addiction. He'll pull you out of it. Sometimes God will not put out the fire of that job that requires you to work on Sabbath. He'll pull you out of it. See, remember the prophecy of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that had chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? See, God, see, there are certain things. See, God is not going to calm your friends down whenever you're with them unholy associations and they're trying to get you to go to the club or go to this thing on Friday night or do this and that, take a sip of this and, and take a little puff of that. God ain't going to stop them from doing what they're doing. What God is trying to do is pull you away from that mess. See, a lot of times in these abusive relationships, I ain't going to say no more. And this is the process of the investigative judgment. This is why true worship is so necessary, not just a weekly act, but how we daily live our lives and whether we recognize God's love for us. That's why it's so important to spend time in this so that we can behold Jesus. If this doesn't lead us to Jesus, then we're reading it with misguided glasses or we're off where our, our aim of what we're trying to get out of it is amiss. We need to be coming to this to investigate it so that it will show us Jesus. And when you encounter him, you encounter love itself. And love is the basis of all true worship. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and mercy given to us. And we learn, Father, that by having that close walk with you, Lord, that we can face anything. We don't have to run from anything. We can rejoice in your presence. We can rejoice in the fact that you will allow us to not evade trials and tribulations, but to embrace them as an opportunity for you to receive glory, whether we're delivered or not. Help us to recognize your presence as we stand firm in our fires, and then as we can leave, rejoice when we can leave freely from your fires. 
intact. And I pray, dear Father, that you may bless your congregation today. Bless Tallahassee first as they have many great things going on here, Father. And I pray that you will continue that love that you will put inside of them for you and your honor. We thank you so much for tabernacling with us today. And it's in Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen.